If you were to ask Siri today, what is the history's longest recorded war, you might get this answer. The 335-year war. Now, I was surprised when I did my research, I would have said the 100 years war, which was a war you probably know, which was waged between 1337 and 1453. According to my calculations, that's 116 years, so it's more than a 100-year war, right? But... Actually, there were two truces in between two of the segments of that war. So I guess it could be described as a 100-year war. But the 335-year war was probably no war at all. According to the people who were supposed to know these things, there really was not war waged, but it was on the books as a war between the Dutch and the Scilly Islands, which make up the most western part of Great Britain. But history's longest war is one which has been going on for almost 2,000 years. And we read about it here in the book of Galatians. It's quite a contest. Let's read about it in verse 17 of Galatians 5. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. The opponents are obvious. The flesh, and the flesh is your personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. My personality, apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, that is your flesh. It's myself. It's my self-centeredness. It's my self-insistence on my own way. It's my self-indulgence. It's any number of other self-hyphenated words that describe me in my life and perhaps describe you as well. It's selfishness is what it boils down to. That's what the flesh is. And the other opponent is none other than the Spirit. In your Bible, it's probably capitalized, and rightly so, because this is very much a description of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's name is mentioned seven times in this passage, which tells us He plays a prominent role in the Christian life. We saw last week that the Christian life is to be a life of freedom. Freedom from the curse of the law. Freedom from the condemnation of the law. Freedom from the domination of the law. Freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Many people have confused that idea of it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And they have concluded, I can do anything I want to do now that I'm free. I'm free from the law. I'm no longer languishing in the backwaters of a legalistic lifestyle. I can do whatever I want to do. Well, such thinking is certainly not scriptural. It's not borne out by the book of Galatians or any other part of the Bible. But we have been set free. Today we're looking at this life known as the Christian life is to be lived under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to assume anything about your knowledge of who Holy Spirit is. If you were to be asked to give a definition of the Holy Spirit... Hopefully, it would be based on what the Scriptures teach. Let's go to what Jesus says first. In the book of John 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's stop just a moment and think about what Jesus said that we've just considered. Literally what he was saying, I have asked the Father and he will give you another helper just like me. And he, a person, not a power, 
He's a person with great power, but he's a person. And he's no ordinary person because he's just like Jesus. And when we think of Jesus, what we know is he is the Son of God. But he's not just the Son of God. He is God the Son. He's on a par with God the Father. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Nothing has come into being that has come into being. Jesus Christ is God. Fully God. He's always been God. He always will be God. And it is He who says that He will ask the Father, who in turn will send another Helper just like Himself, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's God. This is important for us to understand. The Holy Spirit is a person, not some impersonal power. He is a person. Let's go to the book of Acts for a moment. Perhaps you remember the encounter that a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira had with the apostles. They came under false pretenses and offered an offering based upon the sale of some property they had. And they told the apostles, all the proceeds from the sale of this property are given to you and to the Lord for purposes that you deem appropriate. Well, they came individually. Ananias came first. And Peter, discerning that he was not telling the truth, said this, The Spirit has made you, the Satan rather, has made you lie to the Holy Spirit. And then in the next verse, listen carefully. Peter, the same one who said that Satan had caused Ananias to lie, put it in his heart to lie, said this, You have not lied to man, you have lied to God. So Peter knew what Jesus had taught him. The Holy Spirit is God. So this battle is between the flesh, my personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, and other than God himself. Now, let me pause just a moment. Who's going to win that battle? Who? The Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, exactly. He's going to win. And this puzzles me to no end. Because in my life, periodically, more often than I would like to think and admit, the flesh rears his ugly head in my life. And he thinks, or it, I should say, thinks that the flesh can get away with beating God at this matter. It's impossible. I can't beat the Lord, nor can you, nor can anyone else. But we're foolish in our flesh, and we think we can. Well, let's look at this contest in verse 17 a little more closely. Picking up in the middle of the verse... For these, that is, the flesh and the spirit, are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who would say, I believe I know Jesus, but I also know, even more than what I believe, I know there are times in my life when I don't act like Jesus. Are you like that every once in a while? Are you like that more often than you would like to think you are or admit you are, that you would like to be like that? Nobody wants to be like that if they really know the Lord. If you really know the Lord, it troubles you when you go against what He wants for you. And if we are not troubled by our sin, our disobedience, then we're probably not followers of Christ. We think we are. We've prayed some prayer. We've signed some form. 
and we may have even followed in baptism, but we may not know the Lord, probably don't. If you have no reluctance in your heart or any sense of wrongdoing and a desire to do what is right, this spirit and flesh are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. The nature of the flesh is very nasty. The flesh has a nasty nature. And let's read about it. The works of the flesh in verse 19 and following. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. You can't see my flesh, but if you hang around with me long enough, you will see evidence of my flesh. As we're going to see at the end of this section, this is not an exhaustive list. There are other expressions of the flesh. This is simply a representative list, but it's enough for us to chew on today and for the rest of our lives as we consider its evidence in our own lives and do something about it. And he begins with the word immorality. This word immorality was originally used to describe prostitution. It came to mean by Paul's day any unlawful sexual behavior. Unlawful in the sense that it went against the grain of the Old Testament law. Understand that in our freedom in Christ, we are not exempt from the moral law. It's still binding on us in the sense that we are to be committed to obeying the Lord. It doesn't cause us to go to heaven if we keep it. It's just what God has put in our hearts to do and to obey when we come to know Christ. So this idea of unlawful sexual behavior included, for instance, bestiality, incest, any sexual activity between a man and a woman that was not in the context of marriage, homosexual intercourse. These unlawful sexual behaviors are characteristic of the flesh. They are the works of the flesh. The next word is impurity. This word was used to describe the uncleanness of an oozing wound, a wound that was infected. It's not a very pretty picture. It came to be used this way in the New Testament. It always had to do not with physical uncleanness, but with moral uncleanness, moral impurity, most often in association with any kind of sexual sin. The next word, sensuality is a word which carries with it the idea of sexual indecency shamelessly flaunted in public. All you have to do today is to go to a movie house and see a movie, and probably two out of three movies have such lewdness in them. Right? Sensuality. Deeds of the flesh. The next word, idolatry, is worshiping anyone or anything rather than the one true God, in hopes of finding one's identity and or security in the worship of that God. It would be like me, for instance, when I have the success or failure of my favorite sporting team to determine my sense of well-being. I get my identity by being a follower of a particular sporting team. Now, that is ridiculous, isn't it? But I still do it. And I need to repent of it. I'm working on that. You can pray for me about that. 
I get my sense of identity and, in some ways, security. Jesus said, man cannot serve two masters, for he either will love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to one or despise the other. And he said, you can't serve God and mammon. And mammon was the God of the day, which represented materialism. You can't serve God and money. Look, we try to get our security in money, do we not? And the result of that is our identity as well. We worship in an idolatrous way. Paul put it this way in Galatians 3, excuse me, Colossians 3, 5. He said, greed is idolatry. Coveting is idolatry. The next word is sorcery. This word was initially used for drugs used for medicinal purposes. A perfectly neutral, in fact, a positive word. Later, it evolved to the abuse of drugs in witchcraft. Because in sorcery, witchcraft, the occult in Paul's day, that drugs were used to induce communication with so-called deities. Now, we know what Paul says about these false gods. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, they are no gods at all. Rather, they are demons, is what he says. So, this sorcery has to do with the worship of false gods through the magical arts, with the use of drugs, probably. You say, there's nothing like that going on today. Well, I beg your pardon. If you know anything about the occult, you know that oftentimes drug usage and the occult worshipers go hand in hand. Look at the next word, enmities. What does that mean? It means hatred, be it political, religious, or racial. If I have any hatred toward a group of people, then I need to understand that is an expression of my flesh. Just a broad kind of hatred for other people in other religions or in other political camps or in other racial groups. That's the idea that's conveyed in this word. It's hostility in any form. The next word is strife. And strife is simply discord. It's something that we deal with in our homes, in our workplace at times, sometimes even in the church. And it has no place in our lives as believers in Christ. You know how to end strife? Just submit yourself to the Lord and let the Lord do your fighting for you. He always does a perfect job of it. If I get involved trying to straighten somebody out that I'm out of sorts with, it always goes bad. It never goes well. I just need to let the Lord fight for me, as he says to Moses in Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be still. The next word is jealousy. And this word is a word which means the wrong kind of zeal. It's used by Paul in Philippians 1.15 when he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. The word translated envy is the same word that's used here by Paul for jealousy. It's the wrong kind of zeal. These people were preaching Christ to get back at the Apostle Paul, to make him look bad, to rub his nose in his situation, remembering that he was a prisoner. At the time, the next phrase, outbursts of anger, translate one word, 
The New English Bible translates it fits of rage. Now, we need to slow down here just a minute. Are you ever guilty of throwing a temper fit? Are you ever guilty of having a tantrum? And if someone watched you act out in that way, they would think, wow, she should have been over that by the time she got into grade school. And here she is, 50 years old, still throwing fits. Do you know what that is? That is an expression of the flesh. And it's not something that is becoming of anyone, but it is very unbecoming to someone who claims to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The next word is the word disputes, which follow hot on the heels of outbursts of anger. You can see, if I explode, it's usually going to result in some sort of dispute, isn't it? Or maybe it was spawned by a dispute. But nevertheless, disputes lead to dissension. And the word dissensions, literally it's a word from which we get our English word heresy. It means to stand apart. It's where there's this standing apart. And think about this in the body of Christ. Is there any evidence in the New Testament that the first generation of Christians had a problem with this? Read the book of 1 Corinthians. They had splintered into several factions, which is the next word. Divisions organized into parties. Look, God does not take very kindly to disputes in the body of Christ, to dissensions in the body of Christ, to factions in the body of Christ. If we were to take the time to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we would hear the Apostle Paul by the Spirit of God saying to that church that, don't you know that you are the temple of the Spirit? Now, we know he says the same thing over in 1 Corinthians 6.19, but in 6.19 he's talking about us as individuals. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? But in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he's talking about the body of Christ. Don't you know, like this group of people here today, we who know Jesus comprise an expression of the body of Christ. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, your body of believers, that you are as a group? And he goes on to say, He who destroys the temple, talking about the church, God will destroy him. Whoa. That's sobering, isn't it? What a warning we need to hear whenever we're inclined to splinter off and get people on our side over here or some other side instead of on Christ's side. You know, the Lord doesn't have a split personality. He has one mind on any matter. And it's our privilege, more importantly, it's our responsibility to discover what his mind is about whatever and get on the same page. Our elders, several of whom are in the room right now, our elders, when we make decisions, this is probably a little known fact, but it's important that you understand the way that we seek to lead the church. We seek to lead it by following the Lord First, but we pray together. And when we're making decisions that affect the whole body, if there's one person who does not believe that that's what the Lord wants, we don't say, well, six of us believe and one of us don't. I know that's not good English, but that's kind of the way we are sometimes. But we believe that Jesus will give us his mind. 
We're not infallible. We don't think of ourselves that way at all. We're humbled by the thought that God would give us the responsibility to lead this church. But what we are confident of is the Holy Spirit gives us the mind of Christ, and if we wait on Him, He will either cause the other six to go on the side of the one, or the one will see that the six are truly being led by the Spirit of God. The last word in this particular section is the word envying. It means unhappiness with other people's successes. This is one that has particularly plagued me over the course of my adult Christian life. Not so much anymore as it once did, but it still every once in a while will rear its ugly head. I'll give you the benchmark that I measure my envying by in terms of my own expression of it. It dates back over 40 years now. It's hard to believe. It was set in Colorado. I was at a camp. I was one of many sponsors, counselors at a camp that had over 200 students. The leader of the camp in terms of the speaker, a great speaker. The kids responded so well to him, and I found myself just sort of fuming internally over his success. I thought, wow, if I had the opportunity, I could do that well. And I went back in a snit to my cabin, and I did what the Lord obviously led me to do. I opened the Bible, and I began to read where I'd been reading in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where I was. And I was confronted by the Spirit of God. And this is the way he confronted me. He said, look, I'm the one who gives gifts to members in the body. And I'm also the one who gives people the opportunity to serve the Lord in various places at various times in various ways. So when you are envious like you are, toward this brother in Christ, then you are envying me in him. Ouch. So rather than be envious and resentful of our brothers and sisters' successes, we need to listen to what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12. When one member of the body has some success, I'm paraphrasing here now, then what am I to do as part of the body? The whole body does what? It rejoices. It rejoices. And to the degree that I do not rejoice, I'm reflecting my immaturity, and you would be too. Let's look again at the last two terms which are used. Drunkenness, that speaks for itself. Remember what Paul writes in Ephesians 5. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, wantonness, just wild and crazy living. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that sound familiar? Isn't the life that we're to live, now that we know Jesus, isn't it to be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, not under the controlling influence of our flesh? Why, sure it is. The next word, carousing, has to do with orgies, which oftentimes were soaked in alcohol and also a part of the pagan worship of the day in the Roman Empire, all over the Roman Empire. Now, look what he concludes by saying, and things like these. That's why I said earlier that this is only a representative list, not an exhaustive list. There are other things which could be included. In fact, if you go down to verse 26, here's some possibilities. Let us not become boastful. I haven't said this thus far, but let me go ahead and state the obvious. 
just like it's impossible for me to boast and look down on you, I ought to be down there on the floor. I don't like to be up here up anyway. I like to be on the floor when I'm teaching. But if I'm up here looking down on you, I think I am what? Better than you. And I boast about it. Now, what do I have to use to boast about anything? What? Part of my being. My tongue, right? Do you think there have been many disputes or dissensions or factions? Do you think there have been many outbursts of anger without someone misusing his or her tongue? I don't know how you could do it unless you were mute. And you could express it in different ways. But we use our tongues, do we not? To boast instead of yielding them to the Lord as weapons of righteousness rather than weapons of unrighteousness. He goes on to say, challenging one another, envying one another. The idea of envying pops up again. Well, let's go back up to verse 21 and finish this look at the flesh. He says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you. When did Paul forewarn these Galatian believers? Well, it would have had to have been when he came and brought the gospel to them. And he began to disciple them, as we would describe it. He began to teach them so that they could grow and mature. He says, those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. If I am an habitual practitioner of any of these things which have been listed, what does that indicate of me about me? I'm, I'm not who I portray myself to be, or I'm not who I think I am, because I have a lifestyle of immorality. I have a lifestyle of impurity. I have a lifestyle of enmity. I have a lifestyle of these things. And I need to realize that if that's where I am, I'd better repent. And it's probably for the first time that I've really repented and trusted the Lord with my life fully in that regard for the Spirit to take hold of me. Now, it's true that occasionally you and I will find ourselves being idolatrous, uh, being jealous, being envious, and we know we're believers. We know we are. But it's not about occasional forays into these areas. It's about a lifestyle of behavior like this. So understand that. We know that Paul has taught very clearly so far in the book of Galatians that good works won't get us into heaven. But fleshly works, he says now, will keep you out. So be sure that you're not being duped by the devil or fooled by your flesh and that you know for sure that you have really turned your life over fully to the Lord. You've kicked sin out. The Bible says... Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Let's stop there just a moment. The literal translation is, stop letting sin reign, rule in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Stop it. How could I stop it? I can stop it by the power of the Spirit of God. He gives me the power. I'm no longer under the tyranny of a legalistic, you must Now I'm a person who is in the realm of freedom as a follower of Christ. And 
He says, you can. Why? Because He's the one who gives me the power to overcome my own self-centeredness in these areas. It would be good from time to time for you and me to go to these three verses and just read them and meditate on them and think about them. Is this me? Are there any things in here that are indicative of me? And if so, I need to repent of those things. I need to get before the Lord and ask the Lord, Lord, take control of my life in this area. Well, let's look at the fruit of the Spirit. This is the nature of the flesh. Let's go to something a little more enjoyable to consider. The fruit of the Spirit. Now, when you think about fruit, you probably think what I think. Fruit is something that is the outgrowth of life that's resident in a plant. Isn't that true? When I see a pear on a pear tree, I know that the life of that pear came from the life of the tree. When I see a grape on a grapevine, I know that the life that's in that grape, the fruit, came from the life of the vine. It's the outgrowth. So, no word is used without great forethought by the Spirit of God when it is used to describe anything in the Bible. So what we can see is the fruit of the Spirit is the outgrowth of the Spirit's presence in my life. And as I abide in Jesus, what happens? His life comes through me and I begin to exhibit the fruit. Go back to chapter 4, verse 19 for just a moment. The Scripture says, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. When you received Jesus, all of Jesus came into you, but he was not that well formed in you, probably, initially. But he has continued to become more and more evident in your life as you have walked by the Spirit, as you trusted the Spirit to lead you and guide you. And therefore, our lives are in process. The good news is, the Spirit of God in me and you... I guarantee you, he's going to finish what he started. Not because this is my thinking, it's what he himself says. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to finish. And he's going to put that desire for deeper righteousness in my life. And I'm still a sinner. I agree with what Martin Luther said. He said, all people who know Christ are at one and the same time. Sinners and righteous, both at the same time. We're an unusual mixture. But what Luther believed is what I believe. Two things I would say about this. He said, the one who has Christ has righteousness in the eyes of the Father. Why? Because he or she is in Christ Jesus and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here's the other thing. He said, and this text teaches it very clearly that we're studying today in chapter 5. It teaches that I'm going to be in process until the end of my life. It will still be true of me that I'm part righteous and part like Jesus. I mean, like, like a sinner. I'm both all the way to the end. When my time is up, then no more possibility of sin. That's going to be a glorious day, by the way, as far as I'm concerned. So let's look at these fruit. Love, this is the predominant fruit. 
You could make a connection of the other expressions of the fruit. And notice fruit is singular. It's not plural. Many times talk about the fruits of the Spirit. Well, quite frankly, that's the wrong way to think of it. It's the idea of a harvest of the Spirit. It's the idea of a cluster of fruit as opposed to many different sorts of fruits. This is what will begin to happen in your life. If you are filled with the Spirit of God, if He is controlling you, if you are yielding to the Spirit, you will begin to show forth all these characteristics. The word love means the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others. It's an act of the will more than a feeling. It's what you do in obedience to Christ. And quite honestly, it's the Spirit of God working through you because He says in the Word of God that He, God, has poured out His love in our hearts by whom? By the Holy Spirit. It's inevitable. That I, if I have the Spirit in my life, particularly if I'm being filled with the Spirit, I'm going to be loving. And joy. Joy, isn't that a great word? Independent of circumstances, it's not happiness. Many people confuse happiness and joy. Happiness depends upon circumstances. Joy is contentment in every situation. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And he had the right to say that. Because it was true, but also that was the way he lived. He said, I have learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. Every situation. He was in jail when he said that, by the way. He was blind partially when he said that. He was an old man when he said it by his day's standards. He was an old man. He was facing execution. But he says, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. I've learned the secret of being content. How? The joy of the Lord was His strength. He understood it. And the Spirit of God is the producer of joy. Peace. Peace with men, but more importantly, peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have peace with God today? Are you in a right relationship with the Lord? Are you sure that you have eternal life? Well, it's yours for the receiving if you trust in the Lord. He will do this in your life. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace with God, yes. Peace internally, yes. But peace with each other also. Patience. It's the ability to endure hardship. It's the refusal to take revenge. It's easy to have patience when everything's going your way, isn't it? When things go haywire, especially at the hands of other people who mistreat you, it's hard. Kindness. This is the heart attitude that's constantly ready to help others. It's an attitude. It's a spontaneous response to need. When you see someone and you know there's... A need. And look, we don't have to ask if people need kindness. Every one of us needs kindness, right? What was that song of yesteryear, Try a Little Kindness? It'll overcome the blindness. That's probably not the lyrics, but something like that. <laughs> overcome the blindness, try a little kindness, whatever. Goodness. The Bible says, 
in the book of Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate. Be kind, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. How has God in Christ forgiven you? He forgave you of all your sins when He died on the cross and you trusted Him for that forgiveness. All of it. Not just some, but all of it. It's wonderful, isn't it? To think about His kindness. And His goodness is a generous spirit, which is the outward expression of such kindness. Faithfulness. This means reliability. Wouldn't it be good to have a good dose of faithfulness in your home? A spouse faithful to her husband and a husband faithful to his spouse. With your children, at your workplace, in your church, in your community. In September of 1995, Cal Ripken Jr. set a record that will never be broken, I'm sure of it, for baseball. It was thought that it would never be broken even by him. It was held since 1939 by the great Lou Gehrig, who played 2,130 straight games. He didn't miss a game playing professional baseball. And on that night in September of 1995, when Cal Ripken came to the bat, in the bottom of the first inning. The entire stadium erupted in applause. People were on their feet. For 21 minutes, they did not stop applauding. He hadn't taken a swing at a ball yet. He hadn't hit the winning run in. He hadn't made a spectacular play in the field yet. Why was he getting a standing ovation? For his faithfulness. For 2,131 games, he showed up. Do you know faithfulness is showing up? In your family, in your workplace, in your church. Faithfulness. Are you a faithful woman? Are you a faithful man? A spirit-filled person is such a person. Gentleness. This means strength under control. It's the willingness to put God's will before my personal rights. We all talk about our rights. And you know... This will insult some of you, but you don't have any rights if you're a Christian. You've surrendered your rights to the Lord. Now, the good news is He's going to take care of you. You belong to Him. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. But we have no rights. When those rights express selfishness, we have no rights. Self-control. This is mastery of all our appetites and passions. Here again... This section in Galatians 5 should be a mirror. John Stott, one of my mentors, I never met him. I tried to meet him when I was in London. The only time I was ever there, I wanted to just see him and thank him for all he had done for me. He was not in his church that evening when I went to that church, All Souls Church in Langham Place in London. His practice in his quiet time was every day to deliberately go down the fruit of the Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit to show him if he had been unloving or lacking in joy or lacking in peace or impatient or unkind or not good or not faithful or not gentle or lacking self-control. And then the scripture goes on to say here in the last part of verse 23, against such things there is no law. What does that mean? What he is saying is if we are these things, these characteristics of the Spirit. We don't need the law. Why? 
Because if I'm a loving man, I'm not going to do anything to hurt you. I'm going to do things that will enhance you, not hurt you. And that's what he means. Well, let me finish very quickly. And I'm sorry I have to rush through this. But hopefully you'll receive what the Lord wants you to receive. How do we enjoy conquest in this contest? Two things. Look at verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucifixion was execution. That's a metaphor for execution. So let's just insert that word. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have executed the flesh with its passions and desires. We have done what Jesus says if we're going to follow him. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I deny myself in favor of saying yes to myself. I say yes to the Lord. Yes, Lord. Whatever it is, sir. Yes, sir. No debate. I want to do what you want me to do. That's what it means to crucify the flesh. And by way of meditation, let's think about crucifixion. It was merciless. There were no DNRs brought by family members of people who were there at the cross. There was no first aid administered. It was merciless. It was unbelievable. It was incredibly painful. We can't imagine. Now, let's stop just a moment. When we crucify our passions and desires, does that hurt sometimes? It does, doesn't it? Do you have a hard time letting go of those things which you have grown accustomed to that are dominant in your life, that you know are of the flesh and not of the Lord? Yes, it's hard, but it's not impossible. We trust in the Lord. We let go and let God. This is important for us to understand. Listen carefully. The solution to this battle is not to pit my will against my flesh. This is the way many people say, I'm just going to determine I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, that is a recipe for defeat. Because your will is not strong enough to overcome the flesh and the world and the devil. Here's what we should see as the solution. It's to submit my life and my will to the Holy Spirit of God. That's it. If we were to do that, this whole church would be revived. It would be unbelievable. If I would do it and you would do it, we would see dramatic change in our homes, in our church, and in this city. A revival would start that would be unprecedented in the history of this church. Crucifixion is gradual. Sometimes people were hanging on the cross for a week. They were hanging on for dear life. Tim Hansel in his book, Holy Sweat, talks about as a young Christian, he was talking to his Christian landlady and he said to her, if the flesh has been crucified, why is it always trying to wiggle off the cross? And she very wisely said, Tim, crucifixion takes a long time. And what that says to you and me is this. It should be encouraging. It's no excuse for us to continue to be fleshly in our thinking and our behavior. But what it does say is, The Lord has us right where He wants us in His timetable of forming Christ in our lives. Get on board with Him. We're going to see how we can do that right now. Walking by the Spirit. 
Look there at verse 25 as we finish. We live by the Spirit. What does that mean? It means our life is from the Spirit. Remember, He is the Spirit of life. That's what Paul writes about the Holy Spirit in Romans 8.2. The Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death in Christ Jesus. He gives us life. But look at the next part. Let us also walk by the Spirit. That's the idea of keeping on walking. Now, go back up the page and look at verse 16. This is awesome. Please don't miss this. But I say, keep on walking by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. This is what it literally says in the second half. If I keep on walking by the Spirit, in other words, if I live by the Spirit, not by Mike Woods, not by my religiosity, not by my religious actions, but by the Spirit of God, you will, this is what it literally says, listen, you will not never carry out the desire of the flesh. Here's the answer to overcoming the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Say to the Spirit, Holy Spirit, take control of me. Holy Spirit, empower me. And you know what will happen? He will. Now, a lot of people think, I didn't feel anything when I asked the Holy Spirit to do that. Well, don't worry about it. It's trusting what God says. Trust Him. Feelings may follow, they may not. That's beside the point. Behavior will change because you have consciously given the Spirit control of your life. Walk by the Spirit. Well, time's passed. You've been good listeners. And I want to close with... An illustration out of the book of Zechariah. Judah had returned from 70 years of exile to their beloved Jerusalem to find just the rubble where there once had been a magnificent temple. And they were so saddened. The leader was a man named Zerubbabel. He was the governor. He was, in effect, a de facto king. There was no king, but he was their ruler, really. And he was intimidated by the task which was before him, that task being the rebuilding of the temple. And the Spirit of God knew that. And so through the prophet Zechariah, this is the message that he received. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, this ominous task which lies before you. And I know some of you have been thinking about, how can I not... Act out in the flesh. Well, it's overpowering, overwhelming, but not to the Spirit of God. He will give you the strength to overcome if you walk by Him and not in your own strength. If you decide, I'm done with the flesh. I'm serving notice to the flesh. I'm going to ask the Spirit of God to control me. Not by might. you know what that word might means? It means charisma. The charisma of an individual. A lot of us are so charismatic in our personalities. Some of you are like me. You had a charismatic bypass when you were born. It's okay. It's not about my charisma nor yours. In fact, charisma gets in the way of the Holy Spirit, frankly. The more personality you have, the more He has to overcome to get the glory in your life. So it's not by my charisma nor power. That's a word that was used to describe the power of an army. It's not by my doing something to accomplish an impossible task. And Lord, it's not about our doing something to accomplish a great task. It's about yielding to the Holy Spirit and watching Him accomplish 
only what he can do to bring glory to God. That's it. And then the prophet goes on to say on behalf of God, before Zerubbabel, he's talking about this mound of rubble, this mighty mountain will be leveled. And guess what happened? God did it. What mighty mountain do you have in your life? What rubble that needs to be removed? And you don't have what it takes to do it. Would you bow and pray? Would you think about that one thing or those things that are plaguing you? Do you have a visual? Would you just say to the Lord, Lord, I want to give this to you. More importantly, I want to give my heart to you in a fresh way. Would you fill me and produce your fruit through me? Would you continue to form Christ in me? Would you accelerate Christ-likeness in my heart, Lord? And would you be with my church family? That our church would begin to look like Jesus. In whose name I pray. Amen.